Join me, Nathan Anibaba, on Wednesday, the 9th of December at 3 p.m. GMT for the client-side webinar, Will B2B Sales Ever Be The Same Again? Joining us will be our globally recognized panel of B2B leaders, Brent Adamson, the distinguished VP of Gartner and author of the Challenger Sale Methodology. Jeff Phillips is the former head of marketing for Sage. Marie Bergfeld is the head of marketing portfolio and communications at Bobst. You will learn what are the implications for the way that B2B sales teams now go to market, how industries that relied on field sales teams are adapting, how the best B2B businesses are prospecting remotely at the moment, what are the best tools for remote sales teams. That's Wednesday, the 9th of December at 3 p.m. GMT for the client-side webinar, Will B2B Sales Ever Be the Same Again? Details to book are in the description. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. Her name is Tamara Littleton, and she is the CEO of The Social Element, a global social media agency that has only about 300 employees and clients like Nissan, Diageo, and Toyota. She has a storied background coming out of the BBC in 2000 to take a punt on where this social media thing was going to go. Everyone at the time was talking about chat rooms and online communities, and Tamara was way ahead of the curve and she had plans for where online communities would evolve and believe it or not she was advocating for social media way before it was even a thing may i remind you that facebook started in 2003 2004 so if there's anyone that can tell us about where social media is today and where it's going then that person is tamara littleton we go deep into the weeds about all things concerning antisocial behavior online what the social platform should do about it. We talk about the social dilemma and the idea that the ad-supported business model of the social platforms are making us more divided than ever. She has a fascinating company as well called Polpio, which helps brands with crisis management and scenario planning. We've got a really exciting element of the show, which I'm excited to hear your feedback on, where we reveal at the end who's coming up next on the podcast. So stick around for that. If you're interested in anything to do with social media, then you will find this conversation to be absolutely fascinating. So without me keeping you in suspense any further, my conversation with Tamara Littleton. Tamara Littleton, welcome to Agency Dealmasters. Thank you, Nathan. It's lovely to be here. Absolute pleasure speaking to you. Your history and background is absolutely fascinating. You get your degree from Manchester University in psychology. And at that point, you wanted to be a criminal psychologist. What led you into a career in the marketing world? Yeah, it, it is a kind of a definitely a tale of just falling into it uh, in quite a, quite a different way. Uh, so, yeah, I would say that at Manchester, I liked hockey. And I liked my new life of being free and I didn't focus so much on the degree. Um, I, I loved doing psychology, but I was, I was not a great student. Right. Um, and so I, I kind of had this grand plan of being a, a criminal psychologist. I thought that sounded great. But the truth was that the result that I got was not really going to get me in that direction. Um, and, uh, but what I did do is I played a lot of hockey. And when I moved back to London, I essentially, the best thing that I did was I taught myself to touch type. 
Hmm. And I became really good at typing and I got myself a job in publishing as a publishing secretary through my hockey captain. And I just fell into publishing and I'm going to date myself very badly, but this was the mid nineties. And it was when uh, digital was starting to become more of a thing, World Wide Web and also publishing moved to online publishing. And I just, I got really into it. I'm such a geeky nerd. I knew how to code. I was, I basically sort of taught myself um, how to uh, sort of change over to online publishing. And that was the direction I took. It was much more around falling into publishing, falling into digital publishing and falling quite literally off a ladder. And I broke my wrist and I got made uh, redundant uh, when I was actually a consultant. I was doing intranet consultancy. And then I got a job at the BBC as a result of that uh, crucial breaking of my wrist. And to me, the rest was history. That was such a, an amazing time. Really interesting. So let's talk about that time at the BBC, because in 1999, you were running the team of webmasters uh, at the BBC that predated YouTube, Twitter, Facebook. Yeah. And that was the time when everyone really were sort of going all in on online communities. How did your time with the BBC lead you to setting up the agency in 2002? Oh my God, it was such an amazing time. It was one of my most favorite jobs apart from running my own company. Um, it was such a pioneering time. So we were basically uh, in charge of everything that went on to BBC Online and making sure, you know, I was getting up in the middle of the night and fixing things. And and as a result, we were working with the teams that built the first online community. So forums, live chat. There was nothing else, as you say, you know, Facebook hadn't started, Twitter hadn't started, but communities were starting to become a thing. And that was when I first got the idea to start the company. I didn't quite have the courage to set it up at that point, but I just felt that online communities at some point would be branded communities and that brands would pay someone to manage those communities to the standards of the BBC, essentially. So I had the inkling of the idea, but I didn't quite go for it straight away. Super fascinating. And as you say, that was pre all of the major social networks, right? YouTube, Twitter, Facebook. And your dad thought that you were actually responsible for creating it all. Talk talk a little bit about that. Bless him. Yes, I I lost my dad in in January of this year, but he he always thought that I invented social media and it became (laughs) a bit of a running joke in the family because I I didn't have the heart to actually correct that. But in a way, way I like to think that I was there right at the beginning and driving the industry, right? Definitely, definitely. I'm sure Mark Zuckerberg got his idea from you from you, and sort of what you were doing at that time. I like to think so. <laughs> <laughs> so so let's talk a little bit about the founding story of The Social Element. You set up a moderation in 2002, which was the predecessor to The Social Element. Yes. You later rebranded to The Social Element in 2017, and you offered moderation services, community management, social media crisis solutions to, again, some of the largest companies in the world, Oreo, MTV, Oprah, Gatwick, uh, Smirnoff, Lego, just go down the list. Tell us the founding story of the agency. How did you get started? It is quite a classic one. It is, uh, I set it up in my garage. Um, <laughs> and I, I found, do you know what? I found my original business plan the other day. I was doing a bit of a clear out and uh, I, it showed all the costs and I had, I spent £2,500 on setup costs, wow. which were mainly my website. 
okay. um, and and just sort of getting things going. I had ten thousand investment from my parents, um, which I'm very uh, privileged to have. I, I recognise that. Sure. Uh, they did get a great return for their money back. Um, I think it was like three times over. So they were very, very pleased with that that return. And bragging rights to all of his yeah, friends, absolutely. right? My daughter invented social media. <laughs> yeah. We did a great investment at the right time. <laughs> it only cost us 10 grand. <laughs> um, and so, you know, the first, it feels like it was probably about the first eight years, I didn't have an office because I didn't have any money. It was very much, I'd, I'd gone from the BBC, I took one more job at a place called Cello. Uh, which was a great company. This is at the time for for people who remember this kind of thing when they were doing things like online portals. Right. So you would get your broadband and there would be an online portal with content. And I was managing the, the content on that. But they started offering redundancy. It was a Dutch company and they were doing three months redundancy. So I took that opportunity and I'll picture the scene that was very much in the dot-com sort of boom time. Mm. Everyone was doing startups. And I thought, this is my time. I'm going to go for it. Mm. And I had the redundancy money. I had the money from my parents. Um, unfortunately, I didn't have any clients and there was no industry. And so I had to, <laughs> I had to spend the first few years kind of doing more consultancy and building up, uh, you know, just taking my time to sort of find the sort of the bigger clients. But um yeah, it was it was very much just go for it, start up, no office, and yeah. and for many years I didn't have an office and and actually kind of started the whole thing remotely. Really interesting. So in the pre-interview, I asked you to sort of tell me about the the origin story, and then you casually glossed over the fact that oh, in the early days we won Chevron, GE, and Disney as early clients, and I was like, hang on a minute, how do you win? Chevron, Oil, GE, and Disney as clients. Talk a little bit about how you won those clients early on, because it's a fascinating story about when you were in New York, didn't have very much money at all. It's the classic entrepreneurial story. Yeah. Can you share that? Yeah, of course. So, so yes, I was quite green, and um, basically they were inbound sales. What I did do right very early on is that I focused on my website. And I think maybe because of my digital background, I knew that that was the thing to do. And I focused on PR and I was getting sort of starting to get speaking gigs around online safety, that kind of thing. So I was building up a sort of a slight reputation. Mm. And I think our SEO was pretty good. So it was these these clients were actually contacting me and I'd focused on my own background because when you don't have clients you can't really sort of shout about things. But I, I focused on my BBC background and the consultancy and and honestly, I don't think there were many people doing what I was doing. There was like three companies or something. And so uh, Wonderman uh, got hold of me, Wonderman in New York, mm. and they asked me to help them with a pitch that they were doing to Chevron. There was a massive advertising campaign, but it was very forward thinking. It was all about what happens when the oil runs out. And they wanted to create a forum for people to discuss this. And it was actually quite an academic forum. It was really, really well done. But I had to pitch for that element of managing that community. And they flew me out to New York. And yeah, as you say, it was early days. I had no money. I had no money for food. I had no money for taxis. Wow. Luckily, they were sort of putting me up and giving me sort of 
uh, food in the hotel and that kind oh of thing. Oh, my God. But I, I basically had to tell them that I was just going to walk everywhere because I love New York. <laughs> and I, I could afford a Starbucks coffee because I was obsessed about drinking Starbucks in New York. So, yeah, um, yeah it was quite lean times. But, wow. um, and, but as a result of that, then you can start building on that. And so, yeah, the first... It, the first years were all inbound sales and it did get a bit ridiculous. People were just picking up the phone and, you know, huge brands just saying, we need your help, which was amazing. That's amazing. So tell us where you are today. I mean, roughly three, 300 employees, your fortunes are very different. I, I guess you can afford your lunch now. Yeah. Um, so, and you've, you know, we mentioned some of the clients that you, that you're working with at the top of the show. Tell us how the company has grown from those early embryonic days in the early 2000s to where we are now in 2020. Give us an idea of employees, revenue, uh, sort of locations, uh, clients. Sure. I'll give you everything. Uh, so <laughs> I'm not asking for much. Am I? <laughs> the first few years definitely were very tough. I think as a result, because social media hadn't really kind of kicked into what we know of it now. Um, it meant that I was doing consultancy on the side. So for the first couple of years, I was actually doing sort of ongoing consultancy work to keep the revenues coming in. Um, around about 2000 and 2005, 2006, I would say it really started to pick up a lot more. And to give context, Facebook started around 2004. Amazing. So um, and America was ahead when it came to digital advertising and they were doing much more around user-generated content. So the early sort of stages, we were doing a lot of ad campaigns with like microsites that they just get into contact and say, we need you to moderate the images as part of this campaign, for example, sure. or the text. So we're doing loads of those kind of campaigns, which were amazing. And then around about, um, I would say 2000 and 10 to 2015 were the real sort of a massive sort of boom years mm. and we started to win clients like um nokia and lego and um nissan and mondelez and i think the shift was that we started managing these huge uh, projects across different languages and i think that was massively valuable to to brands that they had multiple brands multiple territories and they needed their social media managed across across the world essentially so the model that i have is that because i started the team remotely i just kept going with that and it worked really well i i actually always wanted it to be a global uh, company okay and in fact my my first business plan that i found the other day was kind of very very ambitious it was always going to be global Amazing. so i had people working from home all around the world which meant that we could manage social media in different languages. So, yeah, there was this huge sort of growth point. And I think essentially then it we sort of rebranded in 2017, as you said, to become the social element because we'd, we'd changed what we, we do. Um, but we've grown from nothing to just shy of 10 million in revenue. Fantastic. And around about 300 people which is sort of 90 staff and, and the rest uh, freelancers. So it's it's grown and, and it's still independent, which I'm very proud of. Phenomenal. So what problems your clients typically have today and how do you help solve them? Sure. So it has changed over the years. So I think we started much more in 
reputation management and actually child safety. That That's our heritage. Mm. We work with a lot of children's brands and, and we always have because going back in time, there were some really awful things going on. So people were starting online forums, they were starting virtual worlds and there was no moderation, there was no control and a lot of bad stuff was happening behind the scenes. So a lot of the, what makes me very proud is what we've done to sort of protect children over the years but it was also our heritage and what people needed us for. That then pivoted. That's It's still a big part of what we do for some clients, but uh, now they come to us for much more of a sort of broad suite of social media uh, help. So it starts with strategy. It always starts with a very much a consultancy-led approach. Insights, um, engagement is the biggest part of what we do. So we are literally talking back to the consumers uh, on behalf of the brand and helping them be more human. That's our that's our big thing. And on the back of that, we also do content and we do crisis management. So it's it's quite a broad range of things, but it's all focused on social mm. and essentially helping brands be more human. Really, really fascinating. And so you say that the uh, the seed capital was from your parents, uh, yeah. ten grand early early on. Did you take any other investments that see you grow over the next you know? 20 years or so, how did you fund the business over the last 20 years? It's all been organic growth. So it was bootstrapped from the start. Obviously, the investment from my parents, which, to be fair, was spent in the first few months. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so those coffees in New York. Yeah, expensive. I had a lot of coffees. Um, so really, we've just grown organically. We just kept building, putting it back into the company. Mm. Um, and, and it's been a great way a great way to grow. I, I've had um, offers along the way and a lot of people interested, but we have just stuck in our lane, got on with it, and we haven't had to take external funding. Really fascinating. So so what would you say is your superpower as an agency? If you, if you could distill why the social element is different, special, stands out from other agencies, other competing agencies, what would you say your superpower is? I'm going to go back to that genuine human connection, actually, because it is such an important thing. And and it's not just a tagline for us. We're so focused on culture and how we are with each other in the agency. I mean, we go as far as uh, we get everyone disc profiled, which is a bit like sort of Myers-Briggs when, mm. when you sort of focus on their own individual personality style. And that what, really are you, what are you? I'm an SI, which is, uh, it's kind of Sensing introverted. introverted, right. It's, uh, yeah, so it's very much focused on collaboration and teamwork um, okay. and can be quite sort of methodical, but I also have this very hyper sort of extroverted side to me as well. Mm. So the, the S and the I mean different things, but um, uh, so, yeah, it's interesting. we are focused on how we are with each other. We're also very, very, I know every agency is obsessed about their clients, um, but we focus on long-term relationships and and really being there for our, our clients in, in terms of their sort of strategy and just being, you know, a good partner. But also that genuine human connection is, is we're very, very obsessed. Maybe this is my psychology background, I don't know, mm. but we are obsessed about how the consumers behave. And because we're on the front line, because we're doing engagement and community management, we understand what the consumers are saying. And then we have loads of data. So we do research into what they're doing, how they're behaving. 
And then that leads back into everything that we do. We feed that back into the social media strategy for the brands. Mm. So yeah, human connection for me is, is everything. Really interesting. Let's let's talk a little bit about social media more more broadly. Sure. So from the early days of 2002 with Friendster, Bebo, later Facebook, Instagram, and now and now TikTok, how would you describe where we are currently with the landscape of social media? How would you describe where we are? It's funny you sort of reel off all of those names and you realize that the platforms change. Mm. But we're still here, right? Mm. So <laughs> it's all about uh, human behavior. But to me, everything comes full circle. So communities were a big thing when I started. They became uh, what everyone was obsessed about, uh, user-generated content. And then it switched to more you know, general social media marketing content and perhaps more of a broadcasting approach to, to marketing. Uh, there's been more of a switch back to community and and the real value of niche communities and so what's going on on WhatsApp. And if you think about it, how you're dealing with social yourself, there's so much value in those LinkedIn communities, WhatsApp, loads of stuff is going off on the side. And that's how consumers are behavior, behaving as well. So it just switches. It switches so much and it's really for brands it's about staying one one step ahead and also adapting to the tech changes but also how humans how their behavior evolves according to the to the technology so mm. it it just keeps changing right mm. but certain things still stay the same as you say it's it's our desire to connect our desire to uh, share our yeah. feelings and our thoughts and to be recognized and there's ego and status at play uh, you know with all of these platforms as well so they're really deep fundamental human desires and I guess that comes from your psychology background to a certain extent definitely uh, you know I am fascinated by people you know I love nothing more than when you're allowed to sit in a cafe obviously we're not allowed to at the moment mm. but just people watching and seeing how they uh, react um mm. you know i am and and even the you know the darker side of how people react is all relevant to to brands and, and how they can connect well let's talk about that then so so how concerned are you about you know the recent i say the recent spat it's probably happened since social media began but bullying racism xenophobia on social media are you one of these people that says that we should restrict the freedom of speech of, of people so that you know or should the social platforms enforce greater controls on what people are are saying on their tools. I mean, I, recently Twitter and, and and Facebook over the recent elections decided to ban sort of uh, all communication related to the campaigns. Yeah. And that has then spun out, I heard today, there's a new platform that has been created by Republicans and the far right, I'm led to believe, Mm. um that's specific parlor right that's specific to their views so what are your views on what the social platform should be doing around freedom of speech it's complex <laughs> it's complicated <laughs> do you know what i feel like this is where my sort of experience does come into play i've i've been around for for so long i mean it has been yeah 18 years at the beginning because of the work that we were doing with child safety we started working with the government on a sort of early task force, which helped set up the, 
the guidelines for how digital was used uh, for sort of safety and loads of things have spun off from there. And I'm now um, uh, an advisor to something called the Internet Commission, which is all about um, online harms and their whole ethos is about advancing digital responsibility through independent evaluation. So I think we've worked out that it's we haven't been able to control everything with government, for example, and not nor would I want to, because I actually am a strong believer in freedom of expression and freedom of speech, but not to the extent of uh, where it goes against the law, for example, and, and also things like uh, bullying, racism, xenophobia, as you say, it is all on the rise. It's definitely on the rise. It's just... It's just a sort of a tricky time at the moment, and I think that's being fueled by the media, but also by social media. Mm. I do believe that the platforms have a duty, and I would say that what we're seeing at the moment is almost a, an attack on truth. Mm. That uh, you know that 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 is being threatened. That people are just like they don't know what to believe anymore. So I think the platforms will always have a, a duty. Governments have a duty, but as a civil society, we have a duty. We have a duty to be kinder to each other and uh, we can't just sit back and go, yeah, well, I can be a terrible troll and and it's not my fault, it's the platform's fault. Mm. So I think, you know, it's, as I said, it's complex, mm. but it, it needs to be worked on. So you talk about the attack on truth, but to a certain extent, truth is just really down to what messages and media that you're receiving from the platform, right? I mean, yeah. it's been argued that we're in a post-truth world at the moment. I'm sure you've seen the social dilemma yeah. on Netflix or, or, or read the book. And to be fair, I was actually quite skeptical about it in the beginning when I, I first heard about it because the doomsday messages at the beginning, I just felt as though they were maybe exaggerating them. But by the end of the show, I was actually really convinced that actually this is part of the reason why we're in this post-truth world that we're in at the moment, right? We're all getting very tailored, individual, bespoke messages based on what we already believe. So we're all operating on our echo chambers and that's fueled by the commerciality of the social platforms and that they have to target us, you know, with increasingly better messaging. So that results in this very divided, polarized world where we believe the, the information that we're fed by the social platforms. Mm. How concerned are you with the way that these things are going and, and what can be done about it? I mean, it's it's fascinating. I mean, I, I had that brought into sharp relief, the whole bubbles with over the last few years with Brexit and with the uh, with Trump getting in. It, it 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 wasn't I don't necessarily want to get into sort of politics on, on your show, um, but it wasn't Neither what do I, I was <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't what I was expecting. And that I really sort of saw how I am in a, my own bubble. And, and and it kind of it was it was quite shocking. Mm. But if I'm concerned about the breakdown of society, no, I'm, I'm not, because mm. I think it does come down to uh, everything does come around. And I think kind of kindness comes around again. And because people are noticing that there are sort of issues on, on different platforms and, uh, and you know, a, a rise in uh, hate speech, there will be a backlash against that. And, you know, I, I fundamentally, I am I am an eternal optimist and I mm. do fundamentally believe in the good of people, mm. that I think that more people will will sort of turn their behaviour and 
that perhaps trolling will become as out of date as smoking has, for example. Mm. Um, and it will just be frowned upon and like, why the hell are you doing that? Mm. It's, I, I've sort of done loads of studies on trolls and the behavior of trolls. And it is fascinating, but, you know, eventually this behavior will change. Uh, so I'm, I'm not, I'm not sitting and worried about a zombie apocalypse and the takeover of civil society. Thank God. I, th- I think it's going to be all right. <laughs> Thanks. I needed to hear that. Yeah. You know, after watching the social dilemma, I needed someone like you to just tell yeah. me. But uh, I tell you what, okay. though, and it is something I do get quite passionate about, is we do need to look at diversity in terms of who's actually building the platforms, sure. who's coding AI, and who's overseeing the ethics of it all. Because we need to make sure that more girls are going into technology. Sure. And 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 you know. That generally, not, not it's not just about girls, of course, but that's something that I'm particularly passionate about is trying to redress that particular uh, imbalance. But we need diversity right across the spectrum to make sure that the coding is being done for for everyone. Um, and and this is something that can where it can go very very wrong. So I'm sure you've read the recent book on that very topic. Um, I'm blanking on the name now. It's uh, red and white and I can see the colors but essentially it's talking about the fact that we need the reason why the world is the way it is is because it's been built by men essentially yeah um white generally middle-aged men and the reason why the iPhone is a certain size and that it slips out of, of a woman's hand is because it's built for a man's hand yeah. the reason why the pavement is built in in the way that it is is because they didn't think about women uh, pushing uh, um, push chairs. Yes. Even the way, even the way that our city centres are designed and developed are because of the way it's easy to get into town and get out. But that we have no thought towards women, fifty percent of our population, and the way that they organise their lives because the people behind this tech are men. Um, Invisible women. That's yes, the- <laughs> I, was just, I was just waiting to come in and say, yeah, Caroline Criado Perez, yeah, right. invisible women, exposing data bias in a world designed for men. I have that written down because it's one of my my favorite books. Great so, book. Yeah. Fascinating book. So so talk a little bit about, about that then. I mean, how what can we do to get more women and diverse people into STEM and, and into uh, sort of professions where they can start influencing society? And, considering that so many of us live our lives online these days? I mean, I appreciate that there's a huge amount that is already being done. And uh, and I think it will just take effort. But it's uh, it goes right down to encouraging um, girls to play on PlayStation and Nintendo mm-hmm. when they're young, getting involved in coding. Um, I think there are so many great... Uh, classes out there for coding for for young kids so I think it's it just takes ongoing effort to make it less gendered um, I I had a background of I, I was coding from a young age mm. um, and I used to go and buy magazines and code on my ZX81 which is a really really no old piece of tape you will you will exactly <laughs> far too young um, but it was a passion of mine and I was in online you know I loved I loved gaming. And then at some point, I think it sort of switched to it being a bit more male. Um, Interesting. Uh, it didn't bother me, to be honest. But, uh, you know, <laughs> I think this is what happens with, with society is that it becomes a sort of, it's seen as more male. And then suddenly you get like less people 
going forward to do computer sciences and technology. So as I said, there's a lot that's gone on to change that, but it's it feels like we should always be doing more. Mm. Let's talk a little bit about Paul Pio. This is um, the other company that you're involved in. If you weren't busy enough, you've yeah. also founded and started another company. Um, so you're, you, you're the co-founder of Paul Pio, which is a social media crisis simulation company, and it's yes. a joint venture with uh, Kate Harley. Um, and as I understand it, Paul Pio creates realistic interactive social media simulations for brands and their agencies. It simulates any public social media experience or situation to let the live drama of a crisis or campaign or, or breaking social media story, you're able to sort of rehearse that and rehearse your responses in a sort of confined, closed environment. Fascinating company. Yes. H- how does it work? So, yeah, the the whole thing is that we allow people to fail safely. That's one of our big sort of USPs. So Kate Hartley and I founded this seven years ago. Now, she comes from much more of a sort of PR crisis background. She, you know, she runs her own uh, PR agency, but she used to work for like Weber Shamwick running their crisis division for travel. and, And I came from the sort of social media marketing side, but... We've been friends for years and she was the original person who helped me with my PR and we were sharing an office and we were discussing why. So, yeah, about seven years ago, a lot of brands were getting it very, very wrong on social media. And we were discussing why is that? Why were they getting it so wrong? And we were saying it's because they don't have the ability to rehearse and fail safely. Mm. The only sort of time that you got your your stripes for going through a, a crisis Uh, as a brand was if you actually went through it for real and that's not the time to be testing out whether you're any good at it (laughs) no so so it's kind of a bit like military training we will create the scenario um, and we basically it it can be something like a product recall fraudulent behavior or you know a a me too scandal anything that uh, we sort of think of with the client's And then we will replicate that. So we have our own version of social media. We have press releases that you have to get out. You have to work as a team and uh, work on the strategy and respond. But the killer is that we also have live role players. So we have people who are responding back as the public that make it exceptionally realistic. Mm. So everything you do, we're just hitting them with like, why the hell did you do that? And, you know, swearing at them and all sorts yeah, of things. Yeah, yeah. So, oh, if you ever want me yeah. <laughs> to do that, I can do that. It's very cathartic. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a great way to test people because they see how their behavior, their communications on social are affecting the public and then they adjust their strategy. So they're learning as they go. Um, and it, and it's an incredible way. It's, it's a great team bonding experience mm. as well. Um, and so that's... And, and ultimately, we're helping them uh, have more empathy as well. So mm. it's it's a great it's a great training tool, and and I love working on that so much. Really fascinating. So so give us an idea or an example of a brand who had a crisis, but just didn't handle it well at all, and could have done it so differently. If for Paul Pio, what brand comes to mind when you think about a crisis that was mishandled? Yeah, I have a a bit of a, a rule not to have a dig at brands Call for getting people it out. wrong. Okay. <laughs> but um, I would say that it's very similar what they all do uh, because there are very much common mistakes. So one of them is that they don't respond 
in a timely fashion. Mm. So something has happened. Uh, let's just say that um, uh, there's an airline and people are videoing themselves and complaining. If they don't respond in time, um, people will just take the narrative elsewhere and sometimes journalists get in and suddenly the story has just moved on to another place sure. and the brand has lost control. So speed is definitely a key issue. Uh, the other thing is they just say the wrong thing or they have the wrong tone of voice or they, they just have no empathy for the person who's been affected, you know, uh, like a customer or something. Mm. So tone of voice, I think it feels like we've been training up people uh, on their tone of voice for many years now because it's the one thing that you will get attacked for. And, and you've seen that so many times when a spokesperson comes out and then they will get criticized saying that it was too cold, it was too corporate, sure. it doesn't, you know, they're just not getting it. Um, so I think the communications and the empathy uh, are really key. But yeah, speed of response is is the main thing. Really, really fascinating. I could talk to you about this all, yeah. all day, but we're fast, we're fast running out of time. Last question before we get into our favorite questions towards the end of the interview. It's, it's on DNI and and leadership and you know 2020 has really put a spotlight on diversity and inclusion in a way that it really hasn't been before and even though we've seen a lot of progress in representation of women and minorities in media in some of the highest levels of leadership it's still sadly lacking and we're still far away from where we would like to be what else can be done um and what else is the industry doing that can encourage more representation from diverse voices. Yeah, you're right that things are changing, but it's not changing enough and it's not changing fast enough. Uh, I was actually in a, a webinar this morning for agency founders. I'm not going to name it at all, but um, it was uh, just all white men and me. Hmm. Um, so it's, it, we have to do more in terms of uh, leadership in agencies um, I love the fact that things are being called out more mm. and there's a great organization called DICE where they are calling out manals mm. and, uh, and just sort of lack of diversity in panels. Mm. Um, and also, um, like we're working with an, a, a great company called Creative Equals yes. and they are just awesome because, you know, we know that we have to do better ourselves in terms of, uh, you know, where we're recruiting from. And, and, and there are so many things that I think diversity is, is so key. It, it's not just that we need to do it because everyone's talking about it. It just makes so much sense. I'm, I'm incredibly passionate about having an agency that reflects back on the, uh, the consumers that our brands are, are talking to. Mm. Uh, but so, you know, we've been working with Creative Equals and they've opened my eyes as to, you know, how we can be better and how everyone can be better. So yeah. I just feel that um, that there was a sort of a tipping point where there was more conversation as a res result of the uh, Black Lives Matter movement and how it, it led to people perhaps opening up more. Mm. I just feel like that was the start um, and we haven't even got anywhere close to where we should be. No. But do you feel as though that moment, the Black Lives Matter moment, sort of after the killing of George Floyd, is has galvanized people in the way that it, I feel as though it hasn't before? Do you, feel, do you still feel as though that moment is relevant and it, 
it's still in, in the front of people's minds or have we lost the moment? I believe that it's it's pushed the conversation and I think it did galvanise and I think it did lead to a lot more. Um, I hate the thought that it might have slipped back. Mm. Is that something that you're feeling that it has kind of taken a bit of a backseat again? I'm, um, I'm not necessarily seeing that myself. But. Yeah, I'm not seeing that either. I, I actually think that um, we're seeing not only the sort of talk and podium podium fodder, but we're actually seeing action yeah. from a lot of organisations that really weren't um, very vocal on this before. And they're actually implementing things that I think, if not for the I- issues of earlier this year, wouldn't have happened. So I think... There is a real desire to change and to 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 do something. Um, and I think we are using that moment. I mean, I'm just, you know, to give an obvious example, Sky Sports, you know, I'm a huge sports fan. And um, I think what Sky Sports have done and are continuing to do with the Black Lives Matter movement, I think is really exemplary. And, and I think they should be commended for it because often you know things like this have lasted for five minutes on sky and organizations like that but they have been consistent and persistent i think they need to be uh you know recommended and 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 um, celebrated for you know for doing that i think consistency and persistence is the key and you know i've got my own insight from uh being from another minority I'm, i'm an out gay ceo and i'm very very happy to talk about any opportunity I get to when I'm doing speaking panels. I'm always happy to uh, to sort of be a role model if that helps mm. um, because you do need to sort of keep the conversation going. Mm. And, and, you know, if I think back about how things have changed over the years in terms of um, homophobia, unfortunately it seems to have like taken another little turn of it's, it's on the rise again. But really? But for for a while, things were getting better. Mm. And and I think it is just about those conversations, those difficult conversations that need to be had, that have to be had consistently and persistently. Interesting. And and then it becomes less of a thing. Mm. And uh, and let's just hope that, that we can kind of get there, you know, get there generally. Definitely, definitely agree. Tomorrow I can speak to you about this all day, but we're running out of time. Um, (laughs) Let's get into our favorite questions. These are the questions that I ask all of my guests. So I'm really excited to ask you some of them as well. It's almost like who's the person behind the brand's questions. (laughs) Tell us about some of your early mentors. Who influenced your approach to the way you think about marketing, the way you think about media uh, and agency growth? Yeah, I've always felt this kind of massive um, imposter syndrome that I never really kind of felt I'd started a marketing agency Hmm. because it was much more around uh, moderation originally and then community management. And and then I suddenly looked around and was like, oh, I seem to be in marketing (laughs) or advertising or PR. I don't know what I'm in. (laughs) It kind of seemed to stretch across all three. Um, So, uh, yes, it took me a little while, but then I, I kind of... I now, so I didn't have original sort of mentors at the big sort of marketing heavyweights, uh, but I was very influenced by my own uh, bosses along the way. Uh, Ian Jindal is, is, was a huge mentor for me. He, he now is the editor of Internet Retailing and he came from much more sort of publishing background. So he was someone that I just uh, admired as my boss 
admired him so much that I made sure that he became my boss at the BBC. So I kind of <laughs> managed to sort of persuade my nice of bosses to, to hire him. Um, so yeah, there are various people that I've met along the way. And, um, but now I would say that I get my influence from other agency owners, um, uh, the amazing Katie Howell, who runs Immediate Future. Mm. Um, there are so many great agencies and, and there's a sort of, uh, a WhatsApp group that lots of the uh, the brands and founders are on. Uh, it's called Digital Leading Ladies, which is a sort of a it's a not so secret WhatsApp group, and and that's yeah. where I get my influence from. Is from I'm, peers. I'm not and a part of that group. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't been invited. There, there, there is one called Digital Leading Ladies and Lads, so it's okay. <laughs> okay, <All> right. <laughs> Awesome. Um, Sounds like some fantastic future guests for the podcast as well. Yes, absolutely. Um, Tell us about, so we've spoken about Invisible Women, which is a fantastic book. Tell us about some of your other favorite books. What do you read for personal and professional development? Of course. So I'm a big fan of Mark Mark Earls, who's also a, a personal friend, and his book, Copy, 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 is just brilliant and required reading for all. Um, Tell us something about the book. Well, it's just all about the fact that uh, there is no original idea and it's about, you know, borrowing strategies from elsewhere and uh, and just sort of mashing them up. So it, it kind of gives you the confidence that you don't have to be, you don't have to, have you can just borrow from other people. Yeah. It's, yeah. yeah it, Love it. Uh, he's just a fabulous guy and someone to have long dinners with and a great <laughs> podcast person, actually. You must Brilliant. speak to him. My list is growing. <laughs> um, one of my favorite books that I often go back to is called uh, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. Okay. And it's by Patrick Lencioni. And he's the mm-hmm. one who has written everything around disc and profiling. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, even better than that. It's a manga style cartoon. So you don't even have to read words. You can just <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's all about um, getting the best out of your team and yeah. I'm, I'm very focused on team management and culture. So I, it's the sort of one that I will reread. Fantastic. Mark Earls, uh, Patrick Lencioni. Give us, give us one more. Well, I've stolen it already, but it was Invisible Women uh, uh, by Caroline Criado Perez. Brilliant so. book. Yeah. I'm, I'm a big podcast person as well. I just... Uh, oh, tell us what you're listening to. Apart from Agency Deal Masters, of course. What uh, else? Of course. What, what other podcasts do you listen to? Do you know, Phil Jones, uh, who, who runs Podge, um, he's done one just called Wonderful People, which actually is just wonderful people. Yeah. Um, I also listen to the Guilty Feminist. I have been for, for years and it's just uh, fantastic. And yeah, there's just quite a few different ones. That I sort of just go, there's, there's a great one called uh, Drunk Women Solving Crime, which is exactly as it says on the tin. They just get drunk and then they solve crimes from the 18th century. <laughs> love it's it. It's hilarious. Okay, love it. Okay, added to my list. <laughs> Amazon Prime or Netflix, what are you watching or streaming these days that's good? Uh, I'm more of a Netflix person. I have already watched five episodes of The Crown. Oh my god! There's only this. It only, only came, came out, out yesterday. Sunday, yes. Yeah. <laughs> is it I, is it that good? It's really good. It is really good. Is it as good as the previous two seasons? I think it might be better actually. It's really, kind of kicked into some, you wow. know, Diana Thatcher, just some fascinating. Okay, stuff. I feel as though the whole series has been gearing up to tell this story. Quite possibly. 
Yeah, I don't know yeah. how. There are certain bits, and it feels wrong, doesn't it? Because it's like it's so raw, and it's yeah, it's in our history that it feels. Is it like, still quite raw? Are they allowed to talk about that? Yeah, that feels yeah. Bad. It's still too soon. It's like it's like thirty years ago, wasn't it? Twenty twenty five years ago, something oh, like that. God. Anyway, yeah. Um, but, what else are you watching? Well, Sorry. I I'm not a I don't know. You can judge me. I love watching things like The Only Ways Essex and Made in Chelsea. <laughs> <laughs> that that to me is like I do a lot of reading of business books yeah. and podcasts, but I just need trash TV. <laughs> there you go. I've said yeah, it. we all need so. We all need so. <laughs> I won't, I won't hurl it against you. I won't even tell you my, what my guilty pleasure TV is. It's so embarrassing. Oh, you I have can't to. Even, no, oh, was, I can't do it. Was it Selling Sunset? No, what is Selling Sunset? Oh my God, it's so good. Really? So that is based in LA. It's uh, people selling houses in LA. Oh, my fiance has made me watch it. Like, <laughs> it's been on when she's been around, when she's been watching it. And it's just, yeah, that is trashy TV. That's yeah. pretty... It's pretty. I, I'm going to blame the pan- the pandemic. You know, yeah. I, I just needed some escapism. <laughs> yeah, fair, fair enough, fair enough. Um, what else can I ask you? What's the most interesting thing that people don't know about Tamara Littleton? Ooh, um, actually, do you know what? I guess some people will know, particularly people in in my company. But I really love singing. I sing in a, a pop choir. Wow, uh, it's called Natural Voices, mm. and I also do sort of karaoke and and sadly for my clients I tend to sort of put them through when we're allowed to meet in person <laughs> I do force them to do karaoke and dinner um it's wow. just something that yeah. yeah if I hadn't have started an agency my other dream was to uh, open a jazz bar and, and just sing all the time <laughs> <laughs> love it absolutely love it uh last couple of questions what advice would you give to a young person or millennial who comes to you and says that they want to start their career in a social media marketing agency or start a social media marketing agency? Anyone who wants to start a company, my instinct is just do it. Do not hesitate. Just do it. I, I, you know, 18 years on running two companies. I absolutely love it. I still have joy every day. Uh, you know, I'm not saying it's always easy, but mm. it's, it drives me so much. So I would say, Definitely, if you want to start an agency, and that goes for anyone. There are lots of people who are, you know, I think because they've lost their jobs during the pandemic, there are more people starting to think about, well, should I just go it alone? Do it. Absolutely do it. Mm. Um, but I think just generally young people joining the the industry, I would just say be curious, um, be bold and make your mark. Mm. Really, really good advice. And and my final question, Tamara, what is it you know about growing a social media marketing agency today that you wish you knew at the very beginning of your career? I, I would say that um, sales is not as hard as you think it is. Mm. I was terrified of selling right at the beginning. Mm. Absolutely terrified. And uh, I, I've, I now just love doing it because to me it's about talking to brands and helping them with you know fixing problems and and coming up with amazing solutions of how they can be better on social media and I just get so excited it's almost they have to sort of shut me up a bit but I I think (laughs) at the beginning all right tomorrow enough now (laughs) you can stop selling now (laughs) we've bought it I think just at the beginning, I just had a different view of what sales was yeah. and, and it just meant that I, 
it took me a while to sort of find the right way of doing it. Uh, I suppose I was lucky that everyone was picking up the phone and just calling me, right? But, <laughs> but yeah. Uh, yeah, it it doesn't, it, you know, it it can be, it it's just so important. You do, I, you don't need to be scared of it. Totally. When you switch your thinking from believing that you're trying to convince someone of something to actually you're trying to help them, yeah, that for me changes everything because it, it changes your emphasis, it changes your the way you communicate, it changes your intention and it's it's all about intention really yeah um yeah totally I, I I totally go along with that and you're just asking questions and also that kind of realization that not everyone is going to be the right fit that if sure. you have a conversation with someone and and you you ask questions you get to the bottom of, of their challenges and it's okay if they if it's not the right fit, if it's not for them. Yeah. You know, it's, it's much healthier to sort of right. realize that quickly, but, um, it's not a bad thing. So yeah. yeah, it's, I think that that was my biggest change. Totally. Tamara, thank you so much for doing this. I've really enjoyed it. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Nathan. We have been speaking to Tamara Littleton. She is the founder and CEO of the social element. If you enjoy this conversation, then head over to Apple podcasts where you can listen to over, a hundred conversations we've had now with world-class leaders in media, sales, and marketing. Thank you for all your feedback and suggestions on LinkedIn and email. Write to me at nathanagencydealmasters.com. Please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Follow me on Twitter at Nathan Annie Barber. We would be unable to do this show without our very own deal masters. Christoph Blaschek is our editor slash booker. Marian Begum is our head of research. I'm Nathan Annie Barber. You've been listening to Agency Dealmasters. Stay tuned for our interview next week with David Van Shake, the CMO of The Marketing Practice. If you are at all interested in B2B marketing, behavioral science, and the importance of brand in B2B, then this is not to be missed. We consistently underestimate the importance of context. It's not B2B, it's human to human. Understanding people and how people work is, is central to success. It's always been part of the DNA of the marketing practice to want to be one of the best B2B agencies in the world. So I guess I've absorbed that over the years. I've tried to do the job as it should be done. I guess that worked. So yeah, here we are. We built a model because it works. We have what you'd expect from a typical creative agency, writers, designers, digital specialists. We also have very strong data and analytics team, and that does still differentiate us in the market. That's what we're about really as marketers. We can't make the sale, we just, we've got to give people every advantage that we possibly can. You take the opportunity when it comes. It's always been a big part of the strategy and I think it's been a big part of why we've been so successful. It's an exciting time. Join me, Nathan Annie Barber, on Wednesday, the 9th of December at 3 p.m. GMT for the client-side webinar, Will B2B Sales Ever Be the Same Again? Joining us will be our globally recognized panel of B2B leaders, Brent Adamson, the distinguished VP of Gartner and author of the Challenger Sale Methodology. Jeff Phillips is the former head of marketing for Sage, 
Marie Bergfeld is the Head of Marketing Portfolio and Communications at Bopst. You will learn what are the implications for the way that B2B sales teams now go to market, how industries that relied on field sales teams are adapting, how the best B2B businesses are prospecting remotely at the moment, what are the best tools for remote sales teams. That's Wednesday, the 9th of December at 3 p.m. GMT for the client-side webinar, Will B2B Sales Ever Be the Same Again? Details to book are in the description.